Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday, it's a freezing, foggy morning here in West Yorkshire. The pot of Yorkshire has been drunk. The bairn has been shipped off to nursery. We're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast and this is episode 31. Today we're going to be talking about the fantastic Wigan team of the late mid-2000s in their promotion season in 05-06. We'll be going to Staying in the Premier League in the table never lies in 2004 and that fantastic Arsenal Invincibles side. But first, since it's a Manchester derby this weekend, we're going to be talking about Manchester derbies. Before we get started with today's action, don't forget to like, subscribe, notify, all those things that I'm obliged, contractually obliged to say. Do it now before we uh, crack on. Right, so the Manchester derbies this weekend and Manchester City look to be running away with the league title yet again. But the teams first played each other on October the 3rd, 1891, when Manchester City were called Ardwick and Manchester United were called Newton Heath. The scoreline that day was a 5-1 win for Newton Heath in the FA Cup. However, the Derby's heyday was in the 1960s and 1970s. They'd go through a phase of knocking each other out of the League Cup and the FA Cup. You know, City were winning the league title for the second time in 1968, something that gets swept under the carpet slightly because Manchester United won their first European Cup that year, of course. City would win the 1976 League Cup, whilst United win a cup final of their own later that season. They'd lose to uh, Southampton, of course, and obviously had bounced back from Division 2. However, that trophy for Manchester City would be their last one for quite some time, that 1976 League Cup final win over Newcastle. As we entered the 2000s, a rivalry had taken a four-year break and nearly a 20-year competitive break in truth which coincided with Sir Alex Ferguson's first trophy at Old Trafford in 1990. City had won just one of 24 Manchester derbies since 1981, and that was a 5-1 win in September 1989. They shared the Premier League for the first four seasons together, 
and it generated classics such as the 3-2 comeback win with two goals from Eric Cantona and a late Roy Keane winner in November 93 at Main Road and a season later that Andre Kanchelskis hat-trick in a 5-0 drubbing all the wins went to United City's lean period in the derby continued. As Manchester United were winning the treble late on with that late comeback in Barcelona against Bayern Munich, City were in the equivalent of what we would call today League 1's playoff final and spurred a two-goal comeback of their own against Gillingham to force penalties, obviously, then would get promoted thanks to the heroics of Nicky Weaver. The rivalry was distant though, but until November the 18th, 2000, City had gained back-to-back promotions, Manchester United were in the middle of winning the league three times in a row and they would meet in the Premier League for the first time in four years. David Beckham's free kick after 95 seconds, killing the game stone dead. Uh, One of the few games in Ferguson's Manchester United career that he would miss, incidentally. Alfinger Haaland would be a bit of a lightning rod for controversy in the fixture in in this season, cutting down Paul Scholes early on in this first derby. Haaland, of course had that beef with Roy Keane that um, spanned back to when Haaland was at Leeds, um, when ha- when the Norwegian fought he'd, the Irishman had faked an ACL injury. Obviously, Keane would miss that season. United would lose the league title. He'd be back, win the treble. And in the return leg, so to speak, in the Premier League in April 2001, the league all but wrapped up for United. Keane would have revenge, coming in with a uh, knee-high tackle that effectively ended Haaland's career and... King would be banned for uh, saying that he meant it in his autobiography, banned for a few matches, obviously. That led to another on-field <laughs> incident for Keane, uh, elbowing Jason McAteer in the back of the head. Anyway, back to the Manchester derby. We'd have to wait another season for that. after that 1-1 draw. City got relegated at the first time of asking, but they would be back for the 2002-03 season via Kevin Keegan. Kevin Keegan, an old adversary of Sir Alex Ferguson, of course. And finally... In November, as they often used to play each other in November, who knows, maybe it was just coincidence, Manchester City finally got their win for the first time in 13 years. Feed the goat, he will score, capitalising on errors from the likes of Gary Neville, Rio Ferdinand, slotting a th- couple of goals past um, Fabian Bartes there. Goal scorer for Man United, of course, was their current manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Not enough. City would win 3-1. But United would win the league that season. Kevin Keegan's ambitions of getting Manchester City into the Europe European football came slightly short and they finished ninth and it would be their joint highest Premier League finish at that time, obviously. Even in United's lean years in 2004, 5, 6, where they went a few years, three seasons without a Premier League title, which we'll talk about later on as well, City would flip from relegation fights to mid-table and I think they finished ninth, eighth. A couple of those finishes, Stuart Pearce would come in Several other managers would come in. and There were wins for City in this period, though more wins than the 3-1 in 2002. A 4-1 hammering at the City of Manchester Stadium. Sean Wright Phillips got an absolute belter in that game in the last minute, I seem to remember. And another 3-1 win in the same fixture at the City of Manchester Stadium in January 2006, also known for Patrice Evra's disastrous debut. Cristiano Ronaldo receiving a red, ball, red, red card for a handball. And this is where we come to our first correspondence today, Lelouch. He remembers defeats to Manchester City in 02, 04, 06, 07, 08 and prepared him for the disappointment. He went to the Munich Memorial game in February 2008 and was shocked to tears in 2002 when Sean Goethe scored the goals to win City's first derby win as he couldn't envisage United losing to City back then. And me not being from Manchester but being 
around the area, so to speak, about half an hour away. Um, my rivalry was more, as a Man United fan, Liverpool and Leeds. Obviously, City had got into football in 98, so I didn't... I'm not going to use the cliche that I didn't know there was two teams in Manchester, but I wasn't aware the rivalry was so big, obviously. I knew after that point. I've been lucky enough to go to uh, two Manchester derbies. The first on Valentine's Day 2004. Fantastic atmosphere in the FA Cup fifth round. United versus City. Comfortable, really. United would go 3-0 up, 4-1 up. Um, despite Gary Neville headbutting Steve McManaman on 39 minutes. From my vantage point in the uh, Sir Alex Ferguson stand, I couldn't see. I thought he'd got sent off for no reason, obviously. Go back home, watch the highlights. He's just stuck a Chelsea kiss on his, on his head. Anyway... Fast forward nine years, nine years and two months to be exact, and I caught the other side of the Manchester derby. Manchester United losing at home to Manchester City, the newly successful Manchester City in the Premier League, Monday night football, April the 8th. The title procession really for United, they would win the league two weeks later. Big Monday night football, Sergio Aguero smashing in that late winner, probably more well known for Phil Jones' facials for that goal, uh, but it still hurt. I remember being told to uh, cheer up in Manchester Piccadilly Station because I looked pretty glum after that. Um, atmosphere for, was great for both contests. Ironically enough, there was more riding on the 2004 clash when Manchester City weren't sort of in terms of success and leagues were nowhere near, obviously. Um, perhaps if the home game came earlier on in the season, so like for Van Persie's winner, last-minute winner at um, the Etihad in November or December 2012, or came earlier as in the 2010-11 season, or more crucial as in the 2011-12 season, it would have been a huge, more grander spectacle, but there we go. But having flirted with that side of it, which we now go to the uh, the modern day of the Manchester derby, which means money, 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 and Faxin Sinatra, <laughs> Sinawatra, not Sinatra, Former Thai Prime Minister, obviously now in jail, but he bought the club in 2007. Likes of Giovanni, Alano came in. An early season 1-0 win, which by 2007 wasn't that uncommon in a Manchester derby. The gap, the divide had sort of been closed a tiny bit. Obviously, you never thought that Manchester City would then do what they have come on to do. Um, City would end the season sacking Sven-Goran Eriksson, losing 8-1 to Middlesbrough. The same season that, of course, Manchester United lifted the Premier League and Champions League. It was a false dawn for Manchester City. But having done the double with that uh, second win in the Munich Memorial game, United did the double in 2008-9, a year where things off the field were more, perhaps more exciting. You had um, City being bought out properly. There was a bit of a final day tug of war for Dimitar Berbatov. City ended up um, signing Rubinho instead thinking that he was at Chelsea. <laughs> um, and then United win the Premier League, the League Cup. City just miss out on the uh, Champions League finishing mid-table thanks to their poor away form. And the memories that I received in my Twitter inbox this week were of this time, indicative of when the derby really reached new heights. Joe on Twitter says that he remembers Vincent Company's header. Radio Techers says that the why always meet is iconic Harry Holland remembers the Rooney overhead kick and Alex J. Rhodes, good friend of the podcast, former presenter on the podcast, remembers Michael Owen's winner in 2009. So with all these memories being from between 2009 and 2012, this is when the derby scaled new heights. Tevez crossed the divide 
you got that big welcome to Manchester poster, the noisy neighbours jibe, and I think the first catalyst for change was that Tevez signing, because despite, it wouldn't be in the echelons of a silver company, Aguero, Torre, perhaps De Bruyne now, in terms of city heroes, city legends, but he was that change of city are big enough to leave Manchester United for, even though it was a sort of like a shady grey area loan move to United in the uh, in 2007. Anyway, it also helps that, as Alex says, there was a Premier League instant classic in September 2009, a 4-3 back and forth. Craig Bellamy thinking he'd got the equaliser that would draw the contest three all in stoppage time. Darren Fletcher scoring two goals. Tevez hitting the post, which was a sort of heart-in-your-mouth moment, especially in front of the Stretford end for United fans. But then, of course, Ryan Giggs fed Michael in the ball. Owen scores. Mark Hughes, is, Mark Hughes is checking his watch. Obviously, complaints that we were well over Fergie time, but United ended up with a win. And in later on that season, United would play City four times that season. And in the League Cup semi-final, Tevez finally got his goal against United in the first leg where City won, and it looked then as though the tide was turning. Wayne Rooney got the uh, second leg winner. And then in the return fixture, when United were going for the league, City were going for fourth place against Spurs. Skulls scored the header in April 2010 to revive that Premier League title race. City would fall somewhere short of Tottenham with uh, Peter Crouch's winner in the end in May. And then the following season we had... Obviously, as Harry said, the Rooney overhead kick, United going for a Premier League title. City were chasing that first Champions League qualification, which they would get and they would finish in the top four quite comfortably in the end. And then we had what um, was the second catalyst for change, really, and the FA Cup semi-final in April 2011. Yaya Torre scores, City move on. You've got that fight at the end with Mario Balotelli, the iconic picture of Mario Balotelli and Rio Ferdinand and all the United players surrounding him. City would, of course, win their first trophy since 1976, meaning that United fans had to take that banner down, that countdown to uh, City's next cup win after 1976, after they beat Stoke 1-0 in the final, which was the second catalyst for change. The third boiled down to an all-or-nothing game in April 2012. We'd had the 6-1, which obviously when you see 6-1, it seems shocking. It was 3-1 with... Two minutes to go. Obviously, the, the title would come down to goal difference. Obviously, you've got, as Radio Techers says, the why always, or why always me celebration from Mario Balotelli pulling the shirt over his head, emblazoned on his vest there. Um, the scoreline isn't as shock. The scoreline's more shocking than the actual performance from United, obviously, chasing the win. 6-1 sounds a lot worse than 3-1 in the grand scheme of things. But the real tide turner in terms of the league, all or nothing game, April 2012. Third from last match, Newcastle, uh, Manchester City had Newcastle, they had QPR to come, United had Swansea and Sunderland. It was, in well, in my eyes anyway, those were four wins, easy, chalked up. Obviously that wouldn't come to pass, that's quite as easy as that, obviously, coming down to the final minute of the final game. But United's draw at Everton for anyway, a two-goal lead in that fantastic, another instant classic really, when the heat was on, um, it meant that City... All they had to do was beat United and the title was back in their hands, obviously. Vincent Company header, bang. Another Monday night football win against United for City. And after the Aguero moment, the iconic Premier League moment in my view, as well, although it pains me to say, 
City won their first Premier League title and the fourth catalyst for change, Sir Alex Ferguson retiring. So after Fergie's left, we've got United winning three ty- three trophies, the FA Cup in 2016, the League Cup in 2017 and the Europa League in 2017. Meanwhile, City have won nine trophies. The Premier League three times, probably, almost certainly due to be four times. The FA Cup in 2019 and they've won the League Cup five times on a current run of three in a row on course to win that four times in a row against Tottenham next month. The fifth catalyst for change, the fifth and final catalyst for change, Pep Guardiola taking over. He's won six of those nine trophies post Sir Alex Ferguson and could be on for a quadruple, which makes me wince, but taking bias out of it. Pep's taken Manchester City to new heights. They were in the uh, sort of the mode of sacking managers when they'd finished second. So Mancini in 2013, Pellegrini, there was rumours of Pep joining, so he left. And Pep's finally built the dynasty that the City owners actually wanted and not just, you know, part-time short-term success, um, which they sort of had between 2011 and 2014. Obviously, since then, they've gone to scale. Obviously, new heights, 120, 199 points in two seasons, for example. 198 points in two seasons. I ran a little poll on our Twitter account. It's at what if underscore YouTube if you're wondering which is the biggest derby in English football. And Manchester Derby just shaded it from the Merseyside Derby. Manchester Derby getting 42% of the votes. Merseyside Derby getting 35% of the votes. And North London Derby just beating out other with 12% of the votes. Other scoring 11%. Obviously, if you're a mathematician out there, of course, we're living in an age now where Manchester clubs are both near the top of the table. There are thereabouts anyway. United can sometimes drop to sixth or seventh. But both are relatively near the top. In the 80s and 90s, obviously, if Twitter was around then, which would have been weird, um, the derby poll would have been Merseyside derby by a country mile. They were both in cup finals together, fought in 86 cup final, I think, 89 cup final, obviously fighting for leagues, traded leagues off quite... There was only them and Arsenal who won it in the 80s, um, maybe Ipswich, Aston Villa got close as well um, also competitiveness obviously boils down to which is why North London Derby is probably lower because Tottenham have only won the League Cup since 1991 so and Arsenal obviously as we're about to speak of later on have won a few Premier League titles after this short short break we'll be staying in the Premier League in this Premier League heavy episode but we'll be going to Wigan remaining in the northwest of England Welcome back, it's history time on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. So, Wigan Athletic, they were founded in 1932, got into the Football League in 1978, spending just four years in the fourth division. They were promoted to Division 3 in 1982 and quirkily went back down but to Division 3 because of Premier League restructuring in 1993. They'd had a few shots at the uh, newly founded playoffs in 87, losing to Swindon but we're finally back in the third tier in 1997. They would have a few stabs at promotion to tier two, which meant a semi-final defeat to Manchester City, as previously discussed in 1999. Manchester City would beat Gillingham, and Gillingham would be in the final in 2000, again going to extra time, again. But they would win this time, after extra time, thanks to two crushing late goals. And two crushing late goals would be the story for Wigan, 
the following year in the semi-finals this time, and this time to Reading, who wouldn't get promoted in the end. Wigan would make the Premier League before Reading. They were promoted in 2003. Two years later, they went up to the big time. Leighton Baines and Jimmy Bullard had come through at similar times. You've got Lee McCulloch. He came in from Motherwell in 2001. Gary Teal too came in from Scotland from Air United. And Nathan Ellington was banging in the goals, left, right and centre. Top scorer for Wigan in there. Couple of seasons in the Championship. Ahead of the promotion season, Jason Roberts jumped aboard, scoring 21 goals in 45 matches. And Wigan, comfortably in the end, went up with Sunderland automatically and playoff winners West Ham joined them. Sunderland had gone down in 2003 with a record low tally of 19 points. Wigan was supposed to shatter that record, single figures, they were saying anyway. In came Pascal Chimbonda, an absolute bargain of a signing from a French club for less than a quarter of a million, I think. Ryan Taylor came in, another bargain. Stefan Hensch, obviously a bargain, he was free but only stayed for a year. Henri Kamara came in, Ayan Dezeu and Paul Shan. They were bringing in great footballers in and they were well stocked despite the £3 million sale of Nathan Ellington to West Brom, who wouldn't last too long in the Premier League as West Brom were relegated at the end of the 2005-06 season. Wigan weren't even close to them and they weren't below them, they were miles above them. But at the start of the season, Wigan opened up with a 1-0 home loss to Champions Chelsea. Hernan Crespo banging an absolute bluter. And I thought that I watched that. I remember watching that game. It was a super Sunday, I seem to recall. It was quite late on, and I thought it was really cruel in the uh, flow of the game. Wigan sort of, I thought they played really well. They'd follow that up with another loss, another one goal loss to Charlton in game two, leaving them in the relegation zone until 25 points from a possible 27. They'd beaten Sunderland. They'd beaten West Brom, they drew to Middlesbrough, they'd won at Goodison and they'd beat Bolton and Newcastle who were no slouches by this stage in the Premier League history. They'd won at Villa Park, they'd beat Fulham and Portsmouth and by bonfire night, they were fireworks in the northwest as Wigan were second in the league. They had a game in hand on leaders Chelsea. Chelsea had lost that weekend at Old Trafford. Was the title surge on? No, to, to cut it short. You had to look at the fixture list. So you've got trips to Old Trafford, to Anfield, to Stamford Bridge, and then you've got home ties with Arsenal and Spurs. That would be the top four that season. And they all came in the space of the month. Wigan would lose all five. You've got that Thierry Henry iconic uh, free kick at the JJB, the celebration. Wigan would level out to ninth place. And from then on in, you're expecting, obviously, newly promoted club, the first real setback, the wheels were going to come off. But no, Jason Roberts and Henri Kamara kept scoring. Kamara bagged a hat-trick at home to Charlton, a win. Another 4-3 win at the JJB against Manchester City. They beat West Ham at Upton Park. And curiously, by New Year, Wigan had resurged back into the top five. The Champions League race was on, but they'd win just four games after New Year. They almost closed down Highbury by beating them, but would obviously lose 4-2 to Aaron Reese going a hat-trick there. And Wigan end up finishing 10th. Perhaps with a better finish, they could have been in for a Champions League battle. Won one game from the last eight, so there was that capitulation a little bit in the second half of the season. Could have crashed the party of Arsenal, Tottenham and Blackburn, who went to the... Blackburn as well, man. Went to the last couple of weekends with Champions League football still to play for, obviously. Lasagna Gate, Arsenal went through. 
Anyway, Wigan finished on 51 points. Sunderland, team they got promoted with, bagged the inverse of that, 15. Smashing a record low points tally, it would happen. West Ham finished mid-table along with them out of the promoter clubs. West Ham went to an FA Cup final in 2006. Wigan was at the other domestic cup final. And that was probably where you could um, factor in that second half of the season slump from the League Cup final after Arsenal. A lot of people say Wigan couldn't beat any of the top four slash big six. They beat Arsenal at home. Paul Shana getting a late goal there. Jason Roberts scoring a 119th minute equaliser to take them to a, a first real final. They would get done by Man United in the final, but still it was a cup final. And we've seen since from the likes of Birmingham in 2011. Swansea after 2013, they both won the League Cup. Then they'd suffer a huge hangover. Swansea's not as bad, obviously, because Birmingham got relegated the same season. And Swansea got relegated in 2013. 2013 obviously being a banner year for Wigan. And Wigan would replicate Birmingham in that sense in 2013. Because Birmingham had that curiosity of playing in European football, but not being in the top flight. Ipswich had done it before. I think, well, do you count into Toto Cup? Bradford had done it before, <laughs> if you count that. Some memories from our followers on Twitter now and Joe says that Wigan always seemed to make the great escape in 2007 and 2011. In the name of football podcast, he was an Arsenal fan, always hated playing Wigan, bogey team of ours. Remember going up to see Wigan first away in 2008 at 0-0. Also, that Charles Inzogbier inspired comeback at the JJB Stadium, I think was in 2011, 2010, one of them. Anyway, 3-2 Wigan winners. Anyway, Harry Holland also remembers that first game against Chelsea with Crespo scoring that blooter and when Spurs dicked them 9-1. <laughs> yep, almost a record win there, Jermaine Defoe, scoring five goals. Fantastic um, match. Anyway, let's kick on. Wigan were a regular mid-table fixture. I'd sort of compare them to a Wimbledon, a Coventry or a Southampton in the 90s. Never threatening much, always lower mid-table relegation zone, prone to a bit of a cup run. And the following season, after their, their uh, second season in the top flight, they'd suffer a similar mid-season slump, losing eight Premier League games on the spin and dropped into the relegation zone for the first time cruelly on the penultimate weekend after another eight winless games. They had to win at Bramall Lane to stay up. Obviously, cut to David Unsworth, Sheffield United going down, 2-1 winners. Wigan kept plugging away. Second season syndrome was avoided and it took Steve Bruce to take over from Chris Hutchins to drag Wigan from impending doom. Steve Bruce, a saver of many clubs in the 21st century. 12 without a win ended with a 5-3 hammering of Blackburn and then only six losses after Christmas dragged Wigan out of the relegation zone and to 14th. And that Steve Bruce team, the 2008-9 Wigan team, was probably the second iteration of Wigan in the Premier League. You've got Chris Kirkland, you've got Shana from before, but you've got Ramble, Melchiot, Figueroa at left-back. Fantastic, underrated left-back. Lee Catamol, Valencia. Roddy Yeager was a superb player for Wigan at the time. Amiyazaki was uh, like a leopard. Sean Brightly ran fast, but died quite quickly. Had a superb first half of the season. Got swept up in the fame, the rumour mill. Transfer rumours to big teams all over Europe and wouldn't come home from Egypt. Lost his way. And after a promising 7th place in that early season, fell to 11th and Bruce left for a return to the North East with Sunderland. 
Roberto Martinez stepped in and the rest of course is history. You've got Yardi Gomez, you've got Victor Moses, you've got Maynard Figueroa's halfway line goal at Stoke, you've got James McCarthy, James McCarthy, Alcaraz, DeSanto, Alhabza in Zogbeer of course and then you've got Hugo Rodriguez's late winner at Stoke to jump them from 19th to 16th on the final day to survive relegation in 2011. You've got 16th, you've got 16th, you've got 15th, Jean Bersajor and most of all Ben Watson. Ben Watson, of course, scoring that the biggest goal in Wigan's history, beating Man City 1-0 in the 2013 FA Cup final, but then cruelly being relegated three days later with a loss to Arsenal. Speaking of Arsenal, we'll be talking about them after this short break in the table never lies because it's England, it's the Premier League, it's the 2003-04 season. Welcome back, it's March the 3rd, 2004. We are living in prime Barclays territory. Chelsea had just got their money, Leeds had just lost theirs. Manchester United were defending champions, some way off the pack, but Arsenal had a strong team. Newcastle was still fighting for Europe. Liverpool were about to gain a foothold in Europe. We had Gerrard, we had Lampard, we had Scholes, we had Henri, we had Shearer, we had Rude. And as the table stands today, the top four the top five in fact were exactly how they would finish you've got Birmingham surprising everybody with a sixth place run you've got Charlton in seventh Aston Villa in eighth Fulham in ninth Tottenham in tenth sort of Tottenham would drop away Charlton would figure around the top half in a surprising run for Charlton but anyway on the bottom three they would exactly stay the same. So we're entering into the last 11 games of the Premier League season in 2004 here. So let's go back to the summer of 2003. The summer was dominated by the aftermath of Chelsea's win in the £20 million match against Liverpool. Roman Abramovich turned down Tottenham Hotspur. Arsenal turned down Abramovich. He settled for Chelsea and therefore we had the biggest spending spree in Premier League history up until that point, of course. Glenn Johnson from West Ham for £6 million. Jeremy from Real for £7 million. Wayne Bridge from Southampton for £7 million. Damien Duff from Blackburn for £17 million. Joe Cole from West Ham, the relegated West Ham, for £6.6 million. Juan Sabaveron from Manchester United for £15 million. Adrian Mutu from Parma for £15.8 million. Alexis Smertin from Bordeaux for £3.4 million. Hernan Crespo from Inter Milan for £16.8 million. And the jewel in the crown, Claude Makélélé from Real Madrid for £16 million. That's £111 million spent in a market where the aforementioned other five clubs spent £39.5 million. They were very different days. Newcastle spent a whopping zero on Lee Boyer and that was their total outlay. United had spent £26 million, half of that going on Cristiano Ronaldo, the other half going on David Bellion, Eric Jemba Jemba, Cleberson and Tim Howard. Arsenal were looking to the future, spending just £2 million on the likes of Felipe Senderos, Johan Joru, Gail Cliche, Cesc Fabregas and Jens Lehmann. Absolute bargains from them, as always. Liverpool spent £11.5 million with the likes of Anthony Letalic, Florence Cinema, Pongol, Steve Finnan and Harry Kewell as Jared Houllier entered his final year as Liverpool manager. Meanwhile, obviously, Leeds having no money, spent nothing on Jody Morris. But let's get Leeds out of the way first. So Peter Isdale famously gambled away the club's future on consistent Champions League football with high interest loans. They got to the semi-final in 2001, got beat off Valencia. The future looked bright. 
But Valencia obviously wearing orange. The future was orange. And Leeds failed to qualify in 2001. They failed to qualify in 2002. And that meant all their stars would leave Rio Ferdinand, of course, being a big sale for £30 to Manchester United that summer. Only the likes of Gary Kale... Only the likes of Gary Kelly, Lucas Radaby and Eric Backer stuck around from that team, that fantastic team at the turn of millennium, to play in the championship in 2004. And Seth Johnson too, to be honest, um, but overspending on him, actions like that were uh, the reason why Leeds were in the mud that they were, the 16-year mud that they were in until they got re-promoted in 2020. Leeds' loss at home to Manchester United in October 2003 marked the last time that Leeds wouldn't be in the relegation zone in the Premier League until this season under Marcelo Bielsa, where they've retained quite comfortable status this season. Leeds' fate was sealed with a 4-1 defeat at Bolton in May 2004. Bolton, a team, conversely, that were on the up after two battles with relegation. They'd made the League Cup final in 2004, early on in the year, but lost to Borough, and their eighth position would be improved upon right up until Sam Allardyce's departure in 2007. They obviously now reside in League 2. Joining Bolton as surprise packages, as previously mentioned, were Charlton, Fulham, Birmingham, all occupying the top half whilst mainstays in Tottenham, Blackburn, Everton, Manchester City languished between 14th and 17th. Everton would bounce back, and as previously mentioned, Blackburn would bounce back, but those stories are for other days. So, how did English teams do in Europe? Newcastle bowed out of the Champions League qualifiers on penalties to Partizan Belgrade. They were the longest surviving English team in Europe, however. Liverpool bowed out to Marseille in the UEFA Cup last 16. Man United were gone famously by the same stage in the Champions League. Porto, Jose Mourinho, touchline sprint, etc. Anyway, Chelsea and Arsenal battled it out for a Champions League semi-final spot, won famously by a late Wayne Bridge goal. And courtesy of playing UEFA Cup football on Thursdays in the semi-final against Marseille a day later, Newcastle's elimination at the hands of a certain Didier Drogba in the Stad Velodrome. Newcastle were the final English team in Europe because Chelsea were undone by Fernando Morientes in the Champions League semi-final in a 5-3 aggregate defeat. English teams both bowed out to French teams in the European stages, semi-final stage. Both French teams would lose to their lose their European finals and both winning teams' managers, Valencia's Rafa Benitez in the UEFA Cup and Porto's Jose Mourinho in the Champions League would be Premier League bound by that summer. But again, that's a story for another day. Looking at the other end of the table, Leicester's brief status as a yo-yo team was ceased as they went down immediately, finishing 18th. They wouldn't be back until 2014 again. Another story, another fantastic story for another day. Wolves never got going. Um, In truth, in the Premier League, their highlight was a 1-0 win over champions. Manchester United, and they wouldn't be back until 2009. But have since gone on to bigger and better things, obviously. Like Leicester, trying to shatter that illusion of a big six currently. Leeds United completed the trio on 33 points by being relegated. And I had a look back through the uh, the history books or Wikipedia as it's called nowadays. The only time when the bottom three clubs in the top flight of English football finished on the same points was in 1951. Chelsea surviving on goal average because it was the uh, not only the days of two points for a win, but the days of two teams relegated in a 22-team league. Chelsea, Wednesday and Everton all finished on 32 points. And I think that is because there's usually a team cut adrift. I tend to think of the likes of Watford in 2000, Huddersfield in 2018, Bradford in 2001, Norwich last year, um, Sunderland, obviously, as we've spoken of before, 
on multiple occasions, as well as Derby County, Aston Villa, etc., etc., which is why that phenomenon never happens. Obviously, it nearly happened the season after, but again, story for another day. The race for the Champions League places wasn't nearly as exciting as in recent years. In honesty, um, in 2000, you had Liverpool giving it up thanks to losing to uh, Bradford on the final day, who were in a fight for their own survival, and Leeds took up that Champions League spot, which obviously in turn led to their demise. A year later, you had Liverpool and Leeds again, joined briefly by Ipswich, who could still snatch it on the final day, but didn't. 2002, you had Leeds still clawing, trying to save their own club, miss out to Newcastle. Chelsea obviously missed out. Chelsea on the verge of liquidation until they were rescued in 2003. Obviously, that obviously went down to Liverpool and Chelsea's shootout, that £20 million shootout in the summer of 2003. So this year, we had Liverpool again, and we had Newcastle again, and this time they were joined by Aston Villa. Newcastle's failure to beat Wolves in the penultimate match left them out of the running, four points adrift with a game to go, so they wouldn't be back in the Champions League either. Their finish of fifth in the 2011-12 season, the closest they have got. Aston Villa similarly drew one all, and they drew at St Mary's, which left them 12 points and a whopping 12 goal difference to make up on the final day, and had Manchester United to play at home on the final day. Of course... They wouldn't qualify, they'd lose 2-0 and Liverpool secured a 1-1 draw against Newcastle, a match that could have been another £20 million match shootout. And it was, if you watched goal. <laughs> but that was film, this is real life. Anyway, Villa's opponents that day were Manchester United and Manchester United weren't in the running at the business end of the season for the first time in Premier League history. They'd lost titles before, obviously. 1995 to Blackburn on the final day. Arsenal in 1998 and 2002 beat them with a couple of games to spare. And even in 1992, United went close in the last old first division season um, from Leeds, but obviously didn't beat Luton away. Fell out of the running with a couple of games to spare. And I believe two reasons, or three reasons, four reasons, let's say. The hangover from David Beckham's sale. Flops such as Cleberson, World Cup winner, let's not forget. Eric Jemba Jemba, Cristiano Ronaldo hadn't fully got going yet and you've got Rio Ferdinand uh, suspended for a drug ban. And in the pre- some most of the previous seasons you have had those extenuating circumstances that you could sort of attribute to uh, an excuse for losing the league title, which we've seen this season as well. Eric Cantona's ban in 95, Keane's injury in 98 and obviously Ferdinand's. United wouldn't have won the league title Um in 2004, maybe. Anyway, you had Paul Scholes about to spend a long time on the sidelines with an eye injury. You've got Roy Keane on the back nine of his United career. And that combined with the multiple transfer flops and Ronaldo's not quite getting to his peak until 2006, 7, 7, 8, meant that United were third, their lowest ever finish in the Premier League season, which is stupid. Anyway, Chelsea... Well, they deemed not to have the correct coach in place. Ranieri was sacked, and despite the signings of Adrian Mutu and Hernan Crespo up front, lacked a world-class centre-forward. Crespo on his day was world-class. He would almost win the Champions League the following year for Milan, but we all know how that ended. That would be rectified by a certain Didier Drogba in the summer, as well as Petr Cech winning Chelsea 10 or 12 points, as the cliche goes, in goal, and obviously the change of manager from Ranieri to Chelsea. But... Ultimately, the season belonged to Arsenal. Joe, a big Arsenal fan, just simply states, Henri Bergkamp, Perez Vieira, need I say more? 
Radio Tecca says Arsenal under Wenger was never a dull moment. He made some fantastic teams. This was obviously Wenger's second team, I believe, after the year. The fantastically defensive 98 defence, which he obviously inherited from George Graham, let's not forget. And Harry Holland just puts... <laughs> they love to draw. And I tend to go down that route. Sometimes I have said that Manchester City's 100 points is more impressive than Arsenal's Invincibles. The points tally of 90 points. Um, I think that's sort of... It's become average now in the uh, in the modern day where there's the big chasm between the big six and the... Uh, rest of the division which is hopefully ending covid the great leveler hopefully in terms of football obviously not you know outside of football chelsea smashed that points tally in 2005 2006 united had already bettered it in 2000 they would equal it in 2009 going close in 2007 2008 in terms of the points tally city likewise in 2012 chelsea bettered it in 2017 obviously city and liverpool taking it to new heights with 100 points, 98, 97 points in the last three seasons. City might just go quite close to that this season as well, judging by the way they're just steamrolling for opposition. But anyway, Manchester Derby, we'll see after that on the weekend. Plus, Arsenal weren't that invincible, asterisk. They lost a home away to Borough in the League Cup semi-final. They'd lost another semi-final in the Cup, in the FA Cup to Manchester United. And in the aforementioned Champions League quarter-final, they lost to Chelsea and Wayne Bridge and obviously losses to Inter Milan and Dynamo Kiev meant that they lost six. Obviously, let's not take away from the achievement. It's obviously hugely impressive. The Arsenal team was hugely impressive too. Ashley Cole up and coming as probably the best left back in the world at the time. Campbell likewise in the centre of defence. Cole Torre, a good addition, as was Lauren. Lauren in the, uh, on the right side of defence. Jens Lehmann seamlessly succeeded David Seaman and until Burnt Leno, I don't think they've had that number one. Maybe Chesney for a few years was, but that top number one that's um, world-class. Maybe Leno isn't, who knows. In my eyes, he probably is on the just below Jens Lehmann at the minute. Patrick Vieira was almost peerless in the central midfield sense. Gilberto, ridiculously underrated as was tweeted to me by In The Name Of Football podcast. And obviously, Gilberto was a very important cog in that wheel. And as also stated, Lundberg, Perez, Bergkamp and Henri, just superb, really, in my eyes. Uh, one of the best front fours in Premier League history. In the shootout, probably for the best centre-forward in Premier League history, I'd have to plump for Thierry Henry and Alan Shearer above Wayne Rooney and Aguero. Those are my four. Maybe you could have Andy Cole in there, maybe, you know, Les Ferdinand, Teddy Sheringham, Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen probably second tier, third tier maybe. The strength in depth was there for Arsenal. You've got Edu in centre midfield, Ray Parler of course in centre midfield. Only Ray Parler, famously. Um, Jose Antonio Reyes came in the winter for some extra cover out wide and up front. You've got Gail Clichy signed for cover at left back. You've got Pascal Sigon, Martin Keown in defence, great cover. They did love a draw and the only teams that they didn't beat that season in the Premier League, I'll give you a quick guess, of course... It was Manchester United, two draws there, obviously. And Portsmouth, two draws. One twenty-six drawn, 12, lost, zilch. The closest they came to losing was that one, was that nil-nil at Old Trafford in September 2003. Rude Van Nistelrooy hitting the bar. Melee, bands everywhere. United finishing third, Arsenal winning. Confirming the title in the best possible place. If you're an Arsenal fan, a 2-2 draw at White Hart Lane with four games to spare. 
Portsmouth and Leicester did scare them in the final few games when the title was wrapped up. Yakubu and Paul Dickov respectively taking their sides into half-time leads and Arsenal, of course, would claw it back, drawing up drawing at Portsmouth and beating Leicester on the final day of the season. Arsenal would, of course, go on to break. Nottingham Forest's undefeated record, their record still stands at 49 today. The team that would beat them, of course, well, we'll reveal that on another day on the table, never lies. And that 49 is something that teams such as the Centurions and domestic treble winners in Man City that I say are better than Arsenal Invincibles, they can't do it. Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool, they can't do it. And they're the teams that have been lauded recently as the best ever. And you've got teams like, although they had a great home record, Chelsea under Mourinho, they couldn't do it, didn't get close. Sir Alex Ferguson never came close and he won the title three times in a row twice. The only person to ever do that anyway. Are they the best? Let me know in the comments section down below or on Twitter at if at what if underscore YouTube. After this short break, we'll be ending things with a two thousands trivial teaser. Welcome back. I must have made it hard this week because we only had just the one correct answer, and that was from Mark Burner, who's on quite the roll recently. Our player was a striker, he'd been managed by Sir Bobby Robson and Ian Holloway, he'd played alongside John Hartson, Nobby Solano, Alan Shearer, Jonathan Woodgate, Wojciech Szczesny. It was, of course, Cal Court. How did nobody get that? Apart from Mark, obviously. Now we're going in the opposite direction. We are going to the goalkeeper. Our goalkeeper has been managed by Paolo Souza and Neil Warnock, eclectic. He's played alongside the likes of Pavel Nedved, Edgar Davids, Dimitar Berbatov, Gareth Bale, world-class players, and Danny Shitu. Goalkeeper who's played alongside Nedved, Davids, Berbatov, Bale, and Shitu. He's been managed by Paolo Souza and Neil Warnock. If you think you know the answer, let me know at what if underscore YouTube. Let me know in the comments section. And maybe you'll get a shout out if you get it right next week. Next week, of course, will be the 32nd episode of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. We'll be going to Das Bundesliga for The Table Never Lies. We'll be staying on the theme of derbies because we'll be looking at the North London derby. And we'll be looking back at a famous night in Europe under the Anfield lights, Liverpool versus Real Madrid from 2009. Elsewhere on the channel, we'll be taking a look at plenty of other things. Four what ifs, 10 videos in total. Keep it on this YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, get your notifications on. That's what people say, don't they? Anyway, at what if underscore YouTube on Twitter. I'll see you next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply